Praise the Lord. What a means of grace it is uh, to be able to participate of the Lord's Supper together and just to reflect on the sacrifice, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. There's nothing more, uh, uh, there's nothing more important than that than to just reflect as we do every time we participate of the Lord's Supper and uh, for many, uh, Lord willing, for many years to come here at Heritage Grace, I pray that uh, the Lord's Supper would be something that we would always look forward to, that we would make preparations in our lives and families to be here for that, uh, because the scriptures take, uh, you know, obviously participating in the Lord's Supper is a very serious ordinance in the church, and uh, you just have to read uh, 2 Corinthians 11, or 1 Corinthians 11, uh, to figure out that it is deadly serious, pardon the pun, but there were some people in the early church who were neglecting the Lord's Supper to such a degree that uh, apparently some of them were falling ill. Some of them were even getting uh, sick and dying. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to frighten anybody today, <laughs> but I do want to exalt in a reverent way uh, the means of grace that the Lord's Supper is to your soul. And that's why, you know, as we develop as a church, I really want to emphasize just the, the importance of being a member at a local church. We have our membership process in, you know, in the works right now, and many of us, because we started and came from Sovereign Joy, obviously some of our membership will automatically transfer over, but membership uh, is something that the Bible takes very serious. And I always like to say, if Jesus takes his church membership serious, why, you should too, you know, and he does. He does take his membership in the church. He is the head of the church. And so we should also, we should likewise, having, having our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, being enrolled in the Church of the Firstborn, which is in heaven, we need to take our earthly membership just as serious as our heavenly membership, brothers and sisters. And so I just, I, I exhort you and I admonish you and I encourage you, make the Lord's Supper a priority. If you know that we participate of it uh, every, uh, every uh, first, of the, first Sunday of the month, uh, make it your aim. You should make it your aim to be here at all the, all the services of the church, but make it your aim not to miss the means of grace of participating of the Lord's table. Amen? So let's, uh, let's look at the passage we're going to today, and we'll be uh, in uh, chapter 1 again of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we are going to be looking at uh, verses 6 and 7 today. So why don't I read that for us? We will pray one last time and we'll begin. The scriptures read this way. Paul says, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. Let's pray, let's pray one more time as we begin. Father, we do uh, come before you today, and we're so grateful again, Lord, to be able to be in your word. We thank you, God, that we could reflect today on the uh, the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, and Lord, the return of Christ as we participate of the Lord's Supper in great expectation, as Pastor Allen was saying, of that great day in which we will partake 
of the fruit of the vine together with our Savior, with our Lord, in His kingdom. Oh God, what a glorious, glorious future we have. It is so easy, as we can see just from the pages of this text, it is so easy to become uh, overly focused on our earthly exile. Lord, to see this life as all that there is. But Lord, what a glorious, blessed hope we have that this life is not all that there is, but that this life, Lord, is simply the catalyst to future life and future grace in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you. We ask your blessing on your word today. Bless your word, Father, as it goes forth. Help me, God, and assist me, Lord, because apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is uh, essentially the second part of a series that I entitled, The God of Comfort in a World of Pain. The God of Comfort in a World of Pain. And boy, I tell you, I can do just one sermon focusing on the first part of that title, Uh, the fact that, or the second part, excuse me, of that title, meaning that we live in a world that is just inundated with pain. I don't know about you, but I I pay attention to the news quite a bit, sometimes to my own detriment, too much, right? I can get caught up in the political, uh, what's going on. Sometimes I become a junkie for the headlines. I like to see what's happening in the world. And uh, brothers and sisters, I tell you, we live in such a tumultuous time today. We are living in a time and in an era where it's just... Boy, I wrote a, a, a blog post on it. I don't know if you went to, the, to, the, to our blog uh, lately, but uh, I've written a small uh, a, a blog post on just that very thing, that we live in a, in a time where we are in a storm of uncertainty. We live in a... T- our world is in great, great economic flux, moral flux, social flux. I mean, I don't remember a time when gay marriage was so streamlined. I don't remember a time ever in my life when speaking negatively, no matter how politically correct about gay marriage, landed you instantly in hot water with sometimes even, quote-unquote, conservative people. It is just amazing how our world is changing and how the trials of these changes will come upon this world economically. I don't have to explain it to you. Our economy is in shambles. The world's economy is in shambles. And it's just an amazing time to be alive, to be a Christian, to be a minister of the gospel, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, to take the life-saving message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying and hopeless and confused and dysfunctional world. It is such a privilege to do it. And so, I want to look at how God works through this painful world for our good. How does God work in our comfort? Yes, but the comfort that Paul's been talking about here is even in connection with suffering and with affliction. So, ultimately, what we're talking about is how does God work through affliction for the good and what, have I, what I've entitled here for the everlasting good of his people? 
Well, I want to point out three things. The first is that salvation comes through suffering. Look at the words there at the beginning of verse 6 again, because Paul makes an astounding statement, doesn't he? He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and for your salvation, or for your comfort and salvation. Now, I think the first part of that we don't have a problem with. We say, well, okay, I understand the comfort part. It is comforting. It is comforting to know that, Paul, that we are going through the same types of trials as the Apostle Paul. But how in the world is it that Paul uses the word soteria here, salvation, in any connection with his own suffering? What is Paul saying, after all? That his own sufferings are vicarious? That they are propitious? That they provide some sort of expiation for the believer, like Christ's? sufferings did? Of course not. Of course not. But we also need to be careful that we don't also reduce the word salvation here to what many commentators reduced it to in my studies, and which was more of a, more of a spiritual well-being, simply referring to something like good fortune almost, good health, uh, well, spiritual uh, wellness. I don't think that's right either. I think Paul does want us to see the word salvation here in its fullest sense. And if I could just present to you what I think he's saying here is much along the lines of what Calvin said. That what Paul is simply doing here is he's saying that his afflictions, if you were, if you would, were the means through which their salvation, yes, their conversion... Yes, their justification. Yes, absolutely their salvation in the fullest sense of the word. But Paul is simply stating the fact that his affliction, his trials, in his missionary journeys, for example, that we've looked at a couple instances, for example, in Acts 18, 16, 17, we looked at the trials that he went through, the riots he endured, the affliction, the imprisonments, the beatings, the sufferings, that those things were the means through which God was going to save the Gentiles. It should not surprise us, after all, if you look at Acts chapter 9, that was Christ's all-authoritative claim over the life of the Apostle Paul when he said, he is, in Acts 9.15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name, or to, yes, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The sufferings of the Apostle Paul were the means. It was the way in which God was going to bring in this sweep of Gentile revival through his ministry. And so, Paul, capitalizing, I believe, on that very thing, says here that his afflictions is actually for their comfort and salvation. Not only is it there to comfort and encourage the church, but it also is the means by which the church would be saved. And it's amazing to me that Paul at this juncture decides to focus on that very thing. You know that Paul was not a, uh, by the standards we could say of the world, he wasn't a very powerful figure, right? He wasn't a very strong, he wasn't very impressive, his speech wasn't very impressive. In fact, he says that his speech was at times looked upon as being contemptible. 
In other words, Paul was nothing to get excited about as a person. He wasn't a Calvin Klein model. He wasn't a Mr. Olympic, Olympia or whatever. He wasn't a robust athlete. But one thing he was is he was a minister of the new covenant mysteries of God. He was, a, he was a steward of the mysteries of God in Christ. He was a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. And as such, the Apostle Paul had a legacy of boasting rather in his weaknesses than in his strengths. So it's no surprise here that Paul once again is sort of magnifying the fact that he would rather boast in his weakness. And you can see this even right here in the book of 2 Corinthians. Let me just read a couple of texts for you. 2 Corinthians 11.30, he says, If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. But notice the way that this all sort of fits together in Chapter 12, verse 5, he goes on to say, after he talks about the fact that he can, if he wanted to, boast on behalf of the man that has these grandiose revelations. And then he says, look, I would rather boast in regard to my weakness. That is his... In other words, Paul is not a Roman. Paul didn't see all weakness as a sign of inferiority. In a very strange way, for Paul, weakness was strength. And the prototype of this, of course, the ultimate prototype of this is Christ. That Christ was made strong through His weakness, we could say. Through His suffering, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the resurrection, according to the spirit of holiness. His path, Christ was a path to glory, yes, a path to exaltation, for sure. But, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that path, brothers and sisters, began by an infinite humility, an infinite humiliation. Before Jesus went into His heavenly session, He came down into His session of humility. He came down in His lowly state, the lowliest state that anyone has ever taken, because He was the Son of God, because He was equal with God, the fact, the very fact that He emptied Himself or He laid aside certain attributes and the independent use of them speaks of the great humility of Christ. And so Paul simply follows in the footsteps of Jesus, humbling himself, suffering if need be, for the salvation of others, of course, in a secondary way. Listen to what he says in Second uh, uh, Corinthians 12.9. He says, recounting what the Lord told him in light of the fact that he was afflicted with this thorn in his flesh, which we will one day get into. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's what God told Paul. Therefore, Paul says, I would rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Isn't that amazing? So that Paul interpreted his weakness, his affliction, his suffering, Paul interpreted all of that not as an occasion to be a dejected minister, a depressed minister. He saw that as an occasion to be 
Quite the opposite, a triumphant minister. It was a secret weapon of Paul, if you would. He knew that God, because God loves to be magnified in the weakness of His people, he saw this as a great secret weapon which would display the omnipotent power of God and not of Paul. So he would not show off his might in intellect. He would not show off his might in eloquence, right? He wanted the church's faith to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of man. He says in Going on there in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I am well content with weakness. Isn't that amazing? I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. And this is the secret of it all. This is the underlying principle that, over, that, that overarches this whole idea. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. That got me thinking about my own trials, our trials. Do we even have this sort of perspective in our trials? That God loves to be displayed in weakness. God is magnified through the afflictions of His people, the sufferings of His people. So that when persecution comes or distresses comes or insults come, It is an occasion for God to display His magnificent power and what He is able to do, not what we are able to do. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because the ultimate commentary on this sort of principle, the principle at work here, is Paul's own words and what he has to say there in chapter 4 and how he connects it. Uh, It is explicitly connected to the gospel and to the ministry of the gospel. That we have to get out of the way because Paul is not just talking about suffering for any reason, but especially for the gospel, especially in the context of evangelization, especially in the context of missionary activity, especially in the context of preaching Christ crucified. It was Paul's apostolic of preaching Christ and Him crucified that brought upon these sufferings. But listen to his, again, his commentary on this whole thing. In chapter 4, verse 7, we begin and he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessel, this ministry. He says, So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from us. You see that? Had God desired the power to be from us, He would have placed the treasure in something more glorious, something shiny and pretty and cute and powerful or something amazing or something clever or something more influential in the world. He would have put the power in Caesar. He would have put the power in Rome. He would have put the power in the Pharaoh. But He didn't. He put the power in earthen vessels clay pots, right? Nothing attractive on the outside. I hate to break it to you, but according to this text, you're not that big of a deal. We, are, we don't have that much to commend ourselves, brothers and sisters. The glory, the shiny, the effulgence of the beauty of what's going on here is everything that resides inside these earthen vessels, not outside. That's the whole point. 
So he says, based on that reality, we are afflicted in every way, he says, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. Persecuted, but not, not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that, same principle as going back to our text today, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Where's that ministry methodology today in the evangelical church, in the seeker-sensitive church, in the program-driven church, in the Starbucks-driven church? I better be careful. We do have Starbucks here at our foyer, so. But you know what I mean. Oh, the American church has completely lost sight of this. We care so much about protecting our suffering. We dare not do anything to upset too many people because if we, the more people we upset, the more people we will drive away. And therefore, we better learn how to talk the way the politically correct people on television talk so that we won't scare people away from church. That sort of thing is all over the place, brothers and sisters. I know that because when we go out and when we do evangelism and when I talk to teenagers that go to this church and that church and this church and that church, and we talk about something like gay marriage, oh, they're very, very scared to, to call it what it is. And the minute you start talking about sin and hell and, and, and the judgment and the wrath of God, they have been so conditioned by the market-driven, consumer-driven church that they don't even know what language you're speaking anymore. You're an alien. You are an ancient albatross. You're you're so old-fashioned, man. You're a, you're a fundamentalist, Bible-preaching, hell-and-fire-brimstone. Tell me when I get to something bad, right? That's, what, that's, the way, that's the way that they view us. And Paul says, no. Listen, he was constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then this verse 12 just capsizes it all. It just summarizes it all, rather. So that death works in us. But life in you, that's what he's trying to say. Don't interpret my sufferings as failure, right? If you look over to the book of Philippians, which some of you remember going through Philippians chapter 1, I believe there was a group of people uh, in Rome that did not have a proper view of Paul's trials. They saw Paul's trials as evidence of failure, And this is why Paul says, and he commends really the Philippians, he commends them because they actually saw that his imprisonment was for the sake of defending the gospel. He says, he, he, he tells them that he knew that, they knew that he was there to defend the gospel. Verse 7, for example, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my defense in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all were partakers of grace with me. And then if you jump down a bit further, you go down to uh, verse 12. Well, let's just begin 
Yes, in verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorium Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, became, uh, uh, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former do it, the former pro- proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from, from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They weren't supportive of Paul's imprisonment. They thought, there is no way that Christ, if he truly was preaching the true gospel, there is no way that this could have landed him in the predicament that he's in. But Paul is saying, oh no, my sufferings, these afflictions are proof that I am appointed for the confirmation of the gospel and that God is working salvation, just like he says here in 2 Corinthians and as he just stated in the book of Philippians. Through these afflictions came the salvation of of the Gentiles. The second thing that we want to see is that suffering promotes endurance. This is another benefit, therefore. This is another way that Paul was able to look at his trials in a positive light, knowing that suffering, affliction, and yes, even the comfort that comes in the midst of affliction, all of it was working together, conspiring together to produce endurance in the church. Look at the rest of verse 6. He says, Or if we are comforted, it is for your comforted, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. That's just amazing. Paul's burden was to see that whether he suffered or whether he was comforted, the church would benefit the church would benefit from his comfort because they would experience the same type of encouragement. He, they would benefit from his sufferings because they would, it was the means through which salvation would come. And he knew that this type of consolation, viewing it in this way, produced in the church not a passivity towards trials. Isn't that amazing? Look at the wording he uses there. He says, it is effective in the patient enduring. Now, the ESV is not helpful here because it translates the word effective by the word experiencing. That is not good. That's not the right word. The word that's used here speaks of something being operative. There's an activity going on. It's active. It's, it's, it's transitive. It's moving. It's going somewhere. The word experience almost implies a passivity, a passive experience. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that this comfort that they experience is actually effective. It's working. It produces something. What does it produce? It produces endurance. Here translated, patient endurance. Isn't that amazing? You know that Paul prized endurance. Paul was always trying to prod people on to endure, to persevere. And that's what we should be doing in our own lives. We should be prodding one another towards endurance. When we see a brother or a sister downcast, discouraged, 
lost, confused, no direction. There's another, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, referring you to our blog quite a bit here, but there is another post on the blog that I had Scott put up there that I thought was so good because it so spoke to something that I care so deeply about. And that is this. It was an uh, article written by the, uh, out of the Gospel Coalition wherein a brother talks about the fact that, that too many people in the church are bored. You feel bored in God's church? Are you bored of the church, right? There are too many Christians because of the aimless way that they live. No direction, no purpose, no telos, no goal, no there's nothing that they're reaching after or pursuing. And because of that, there's a resulting boredom that blankets the church today. It's amazing. Paul was not bored. Was Paul in danger? Yes. Was Paul's life constantly being threatened? Yes. Was Paul always on the run? Yes. He, was ha- he had to be let down out of a window seal but through, in a basket. Paul was constantly on the run. He was God's fugitive. But he was not bored. Paul had a telos. He had a goal. R.C. Sproul talks about this very thing. He talks about the disappearance of an old term known as vocation. Vocation in times past communicated to a person the idea of a divine summons. That a person in their heart felt that God had called them unto something, that there was a reason, a purpose that they were born. There was a reason, a purpose for their life. They had a purpose in the church. They had a purpose in the world. Even if it wasn't for ministry, they were constrained by a divine summons to a specific task to which they gave their whole life to. The conclusion of the post from the Gospel Coalition was this. Identify your calling and pursue it at all costs. That's what Paul did. He identified his calling and he pursued it at all costs. He was relentless. He was relentless in his pursuit of his calling. He didn't allow the the triviality of the world all around him to drown out Christ's voice. You will be an instrument of mine for kings, Gentiles, People in authority, you will testify of who I am. You will be a witness. And I don't believe you ever saw Paul ever lose his grip on his calling. He always stayed fresh on his calling. Are you fresh on what God has called you to do or are you lost? Is there a mystified confusion over your mind regarding do I have any purpose in God's church? What am I living for, after all? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, all you need to do is take a look around the world. The world is inundated. It is a wasteland of pain and sin and despair. It is a wasteland of dysfunctional families. It is a wasteland of broken marriages. It is a wasteland of broken teenagers. It is a wasteland, brothers and sisters. I met three young people out at South Lake months ago. And what were they doing? They were sitting around playing guitar. I walked up. I thought they were friends, so I started witnessing to them all. Come to find out, there was a young lady there with two, two, two guys 
Come to find out, she had no idea what she was doing in South Lake. She moved to Texas from California because she wanted to marry some guy. That didn't work out. And so now she just said, I'm out here just trying to find friends. I'm thinking, what? This is what you're doing? You're just walking around South Lake trying to find friends so you meet some total strangers. You sit down like hippies and play the guitar together. That's your life. People are aimless, brothers and sisters, and we have the cause for them to live for. It's called the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love, I love telling a young man or a young woman why they exist. They so never hear it. It is so rare that somebody just gets right in their grill and tells them the purpose for which they were made. They were made to glorify God, to know God, and then to make Him known. Very simple. To know God as best you can with the brain and the ability and the gifts that He's given you, and then to make Him known with the brain and the ability and the gifts that He's given you. And whatever fashion or form God may put on your heart to do, you never know. You never know how God may want to use you. Open yourself up, brothers and sisters. Live with purpose. Have endurance in it. Have a, have a reason to live. And then when you find that reason, pursue it at all cost. Pursue it like you're trying to pursue your next gadget, your next technological gadget, your next iPod, iPad, whatever pads they come out with, Okay? Pursue it like it's more valuable than any technological trinket that you lust after or any other food that you crave or any other goals that you have or hobbies that you want to get good at. There, there should be one hobby above all hobbies for the, for the child of God. And that is this, this little principle here, to know God and to make Him known. And Paul always wanted the church to not lose their grasp on that. And, and the very first thing that will tip you off is trials. I heard it. Just recently in our church, I heard somebody say that very thing. Uh, I was trying to do something godly. I was trying to live spiritual and to press in, and boom, I get smacked with a trial. That's what I get for trying to live godly. No, my friends, listen. You have that promise already afforded to you in Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, all of those who desire to live a life of godliness will suffer persecution. It's gonna come. It may be low-level persecution, like people rolling their eyes at you at work, or it may be high-level persecution, like Stephen, ready to be martyred for the name of Christ. But we will all suffer persecution, and that's why Paul prizes perseverance the way he does. Let me just read to you some of these texts once again. Paul says, and he uses this same exact word here, pupamane, which means to, bur- to gird up under something, to endure it, to carry the load, to endure under pressure. There's so little of this. Man, we are so, we're not, we don't, what are we made out of, right? We got we to gotta see, man, do I, my wife is always quoting that verse to me. Your faith is weak if you faint in the day of adversity. And usually she quotes that with something's going wrong with my computer. You know? And she's right. One little trial, like my computer not working right, and I'm ready to faint. And oh, my sermon, and oh, I can't study, and oh, I can't see what Scott did on the blog this week. Oh, I can't. I'm calling Scott at midnight trying to figure out how to work my computer. No, we have to be made of better metal than that. 
Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches because of your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Not just persecution. You might say, oh, come on, brother. We live in America, man. We're safe. I can call the cops. They'll be at my house. They'll protect me from people who persecute me. Okay. But he says afflictions, you see? It's not just persecution, but it's all trials, those little nasty thorns that have a way to just get in and to just know how to get right into the Achilles heel of who you are and to try to take you out. We are called to walk, to endure, to remain steadfast. That's what he says in Colossians chapter 1 to the church. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he calls them to steadfastness. Are you steadfast or are you easily knocked over? This type of perseverance, brothers and sisters, especially for the men who aspire to ministry, Paul tells Timothy, look, flee from temptation, harmful desires, flee from greed. You are a man of God, he says, Timothy, and pursue righteousness, Timothy, godliness, faith, love, and what? Hupamane, endurance and gentleness. Paul was not calling Timothy to do anything he had not done. Because in 2 Timothy 3.10, he says, You have followed my example, my teaching, my, ex- my perseverance, my hupamane. You have, you have followed my pattern of how to endure, how to persevere in the midst of trials. You know that endurance is how we are going to eagerly await the redemption of all things, according to Romans 8. Endurance is how we are going to fight our lifelong battles with sin, according to Hebrews chapter 12. You know that endurance is how we are going to, according to Romans 2.7, we are going to inherit eternal life. It will never come apart from endurance. It will never come apart from our endurance. As Jesus said in Matthew 10.22, those who endure to the end, those will be saved. But not the people that throw in the towel. Not the people that you and I have met who say, oh, I used, to, I used to be really serious about God. There was a time when I was very active in the church. No, none of those things will merit salvation. If you are saved, you are going to persevere. That's the way that salvation works. To the Thessalonians, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. May we know something of the steadfastness of Christ in our own lives is what he's saying. When the Corinthians would encounter similar trials like Paul, like he says here back in 2 Corinthians, the same types of sufferings, whatever they were, they weren't identical, but they were similar. There was, an, there was a, a camaraderie there. There was a way to share in these sufferings. And Paul had great hope, and that's my third thing. The hope, that, the hope that exists in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 7. He says, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. What an amazing passage here in verse 7. Paul is saying, look, he is confident because there is such a thing as universal Christian experience that we can point to. We can say, look, you persevere like we persevere. You suffer the way we suffer. 
You are comforted the way we are comforted. The mutual experience of all believers. Of all believers. It's amazing, but verse 7 really gives us the basis for Paul's hope. The basis for Paul's hope. And further than this, however, is also the eschatological outlook with which Paul sees their perseverance. Paul's desire was that in the midst of suffering, the Corinthians would not be moved away from the steadfastness of Christ, but that they would be pointed to it and that they would patiently endure like Christ. In doing so, they would experience the outcome of their salvation. The outcome of their salvation. So what Paul's desire is, is that one day, one day, because of the perseverance of this church, he would be able to boast. He would be able to glory. Glory in the, pers- glory in the purity of the church. You can see this if you just jump down a little bit to, uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 13. Notice uh, the way he thinks here. It's very similar. He says, for we write nothing else to you than that which you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Verse 14, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In the day of the Lord Jesus. It, was a, it, is, a, it is one amazing thing to think of when you think of Paul, that Pauline theology cannot be understood apart from this idea that dominated all of Paul's life, and that is this, that one day there was coming a great assize. There was coming a great judgment. There was coming a great bar before which he would have to give an account. And he knew that the church would too. And so he often set this eschatological reality right before their eyes. He brought them into eternity as it would to prepare them for eternity. He reminded them that one day they would be there before Christ in the day of Christ. They would have to stand in His very presence. He would have to present them somehow and in in some condition. But it's amazing to me how Paul, based on the fact that he was absolutely certain of their fellowship in his comfort and his sufferings, that he had such hope. He says it's firmly grounded. You see that? Bebaiah. That word simply means surety. It used to be an ancient Greek word for, for a legal term that spoke of something being a guarantee, like a pledge, and that it was beyond the risk of being tampered with. Amazing. Paul is saying his hope is so certain of this experience, of the fact that trials will work for their everlasting good, for the fact that trials will produce in them comfort, it will produce in them joy, it will produce in them salvation. And his hope is grounded on this very fact that they share a common experience, what we can call confidence through camaraderie, knowing that you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. Now, the, the original language is a little bit more general than that. 
you see in your translation our sufferings, our comfort, but the original doesn't have the, pre- the personal pronouns. It just simply speaks of the sufferings and the comfort. Being a little bit more free in his uh, application of this, uh, Murray Harrison, his commentary, translates this by saying that the sufferings are the sufferings of Christ and that the comfort is the comfort of God. He connects us back to verses 5 and 4 where the sufferings are identified as the sufferings of Christ. The consolation or the comfort is identified as the comfort that comes from God. Whatever it may be, the point is clear that there is a fellowship that believers experience in both conditions. Whether we are comforted, right? Whether God encourages us, whether we are in a state of encouragement, we have then the capacity to encourage one another. Whether we are in a state of affliction or suffering, especially in the context of gospel ministry, it produces the salvation that Paul is talking about here so that believers don't slip into despair because with the jolt of the trial is the joy of of God's comfort. Now, let me just close by asking one big question, right? What what does all of this imply? What does it all mean? What does it matter? Why is Paul so adamant to, 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 to talk so adamantly about persevering? And why was he so intent on having the church be this way? And again, it's because Paul had a vision of a church and he had a a view of ecclesiology that he was directly responsible for the health of the church. I was listening to a lecture the other day on church administration because I don't think I'm a very good administrator, so I thought I'd better start listening to some lectures on church administration. And the pastor there said something so profound to me. He said, Everything that happens in the church is your responsibility to the pastor. Everything. There is not one thing that you are not personally responsible for in the church and that you will not personally give an account for in the church. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And so I think if I can communicate a little of that responsibility to you to take on the ownership of the purity of the local church then we will have, by God's grace, a pure church. Then we will look forward to, just like Paul did, to that great assize where he can say, look, there's a mutual boasting that will be, uh, that will be had at this great eschatological assize of all things. You'll be able to say, you are, uh, we boast in you, pastor. The pastor will look to his sheep and say, you are my glory. You are my crown, my joy. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul did not want the church to appear on the day of judgment stained and marred with, you know, it's kind of take the imagery of a, of a bride, right, on her wedding day, beautiful white dress, and then someone comes up with, you know, they've been to the chocolate fountain, you know, out in the reception, and they come and start splashing chocolate on the dress and spilling Kool-Aid and champagne, 
well, Presbyterians will have champagne, Baptists will have punch, but they'll start, you know, dirt messing up the dress. What kind of picture is that? You better have taken your portrait prior to that. Paul likens uh, the church unto a bride over and over. Ephesians chapter 5, he says that the mystery of marriage is a representation ultimately of Christ and his bride. Because God wants a pure bride, Paul wanted a pure bride. Because, Paul, because God wants a chaste, a pure virgin bride for his bridegroom, we should want the church to be in all of its purity, in all of her purity, functioning the way that it ought to. It's an amazing thing to think that Paul didn't care very much what people thought about his ministry, right? He doesn't care. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where he sets forth this principle that it mattered so little to Paul what man thought about him. There is a glorious liberty. There is a liberating effect that happens when you live this way. Right? And I don't mean like the world. I've seen guys with tattoos. Only God can judge me. It is not that cocky, prideful arrogant, sort of boastful, edgy sort of edge that, I, that Paul had. But Paul had an eschatologically sober perspective. Listen to what he says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or the word is faithful. To, to me, it was a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. <laughs> See that? Even if Paul says, I don't think there's anything that I've done that would be a reproach, but even then, it doesn't matter. My personal record of it is not the ultimate appeal. He says, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. That's the only thing that Paul cared about in the church. For that reason, brothers and sisters, he was dominated with a zeal to preserve the church, to make sure that the church persevered under trial, that they didn't, they didn't just go, to go shoot off into you know, other forms of obviously doctrine, but that they stayed true to the apostolic tradition, that they persevered in their trials, that they didn't spin out into skepticism or spin out into atheism or spin out into apostasy, which happens so easily when you don't have your hope firmly fixed on Christ. Paul was not a sloppy minister. Because of this principle that dominated his whole life, Paul pursued excellence in ministry. We're going to see that. Going into verse 12, absolute excellence in ministry. Paul wanted nothing to be able to be said about him. He didn't want anything to be able to say, be said about him in terms of his conscience, his moral conduct, his financial dealings, and his, even his own manner 
his own conduct among the church. He never wanted to appear as someone who was a tyrant in the church, lording over the church, heavy-handedly leading the church. Oh, he was so concerned. He was so concerned, but he had such a fine balance. He was on that razor's edge of never wanting to be guilty of what people might indict him for, but at the same time being free by the reality that the only person that matters, the only audience, the only judge is the judgment that God would render at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, at these uh, early stages of Heritage Grace Community Church, it is time for us to set in stone the building blocks the marks of a healthy church. I know from experience that five years from now I can look out into this crowd and not see one face that was here on this Lord's Day. People will come and people will go. But Lord, my prayer is this, through the seasons, through the changing of the seasons and the times and as people come and people go, Father, that Heritage Grace would only be going one direction, and that is upward, Godward, in a Christ-centered, God-centered, Bible-driven direction. And so, Father, I pray for our church. God, I pray that one step at a time, one building block at a time, we will build on a sure foundation a foundation that is pleasing to you, a foundation that, is, uh, that makes Christ the center of everything that we do. Father, a foundation that our church can be used to fulfill the Great Commission, a foundation where the one another's of Scripture can be zealously executed for your glory. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in the midst of our trials as we continue to learn from the example of the Apostle Paul, I pray, God, that we would be encouraged in new ways, ways that we've not sensed or known or felt in the past. Meet us, Lord, by Your Spirit in all of our services. God forbid that we should run through the motions. God forbid that we should simply come here to, Father, to do a bunch of routines, that we would check our name off, so to speak, fulfill the minimalistic duty of warming up a chair, filling a seat, but our soul, our heart being far from you. God, please give us authentic worship. We crave it so bad. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.